books to viewers. I always thought I had a better face for radio than I do for TV. And with me today is a guest who has a great voice for radio. This is Bruce Gellerman of WBUR 90.9 in Boston. WBUR is the, uh, is the NPR station that all of us prefer because um, WGBH has dealings with the Koch brothers and WBUR doesn't. Just to inject a little bit of politics in, it is uh, two weeks after, three weeks after the election. So that's, the, that's hopefully the last election discussion we'll have. But welcome, Bruce. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for uh, allowing us to join you here in the studios. It's Friday afternoon, and yet they're still buzzing around in oh, here. Oh, they'll be buzzing around even all, all night or through the weekend. So tell us about uh, how you started buzzing around. How did you get your start as a Or what did you do before you started buzzing around as a reporter? Well, it's, uh, well I failed journalism in college. It was the only subject I failed in college. And uh, I wound up being in Wisconsin, in Madison, of all places, and um, they needed volunteers on a very small radio station. So I uh, volunteered, but they didn't even want me because of my New York accent. So I, they wouldn't put me on the air. But this little tiny station, and the station was tiny, like a closet. And it was a listener-sponsored station. And um, they, they um, so I started producing stories that had no narrative. What I didn't know is that that's almost the hardest thing you can possibly do in radio is to tell a story with no narrative, just using audio and sound. And I got really good at it, and then I, I thought, well, I, I need to say something, I need to write a small script. So I did, and they didn't say anything, and I wrote bigger scripts, and they did, and then NPR would take my stuff, it was in the early days of NPR, and they, uh, they started calling me up to do stories for NPR. It was, it was incredible, so I, I, one day I said, well, I'm, I'm, I told my editor at NPR, I'm gonna be going to California, and he said, why? Are you serious about radio? And I said, yeah, I really am serious about radio, but I need to learn something. I'm, I'm done here. I've learned what I could in Madison. And he said, well, if you're serious about radio, you really should come to Washington and work at NPR. And I said, are you working me a job? And he said, absolutely not. <laughs> so, so I sold all my stuff, had two bags, and it's like a Hollywood movie. I, I actually went to NPR, knocked on the door, literally knocked on the door. My editor let me in, and um, a few weeks later, I was working as a reporter. So uh, let's go back a little bit. How did you fail journalism? I couldn't write my own obituary. And that was the final. And I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. That was the assignment. And to this day, it's a great assignment. I've thought about this hundreds of times since then, hundreds. And I still could not write my own obituary. But now you have massive accomplishments. And so I don't get that. I mean, to ask uh, someone 20 years old or younger, Unless you're Malala, I mean, <laughs> what are you gonna what are you gonna accomplish? But um, now you certainly have. Well, so. Because it's a, it's a very interesting question, right? What do you want to be remembered about? What are your what what is it that your life is about? But I'm not a very introspective person. I'm not. So, and I prefer really writing about other people. And I and one of the things that's happened in radio journalism recently, you may have noticed this, is there's a lot of use of the words me or I. And then I asked him, and then we went over here, and then we did this. And I've used the word I in radio in 35 years or more, 10 times. Now, why do you think that is? That's an in interesting, okay, so I want to go back to the, might want to go back to the obit now. So the reason 
you still wouldn't be comfortable writing your obituary now right. is because of the constant I that you'd have to have in there? Yeah, I just don't like it. I don't like talking about myself. I know I've just told you lots of things about myself, but I'm not, I don't like that. I'm a better listener, and I like taking other people's stories and making them real. All right, well, today I'm going to take your story <laughs> and make it real, and maybe uh, when you pass on, we'll use this as your okay, obituary like so you won't have to write it. <laughs> yes, it's absolutely. So one of the things I do know about you is that you actually uh, did a radio report on your own knee replacement. One of the few pieces, and I, and I, I wanted to resist doing it as a first-person piece, but it, it just needed to be told that way. Well, it was your knee, so it kind it of... It was my knee, and I recorded the operation and all the stuff that led up to the operation. I'm, you know, talking to the doctors before and during the operation and after the operation. Um, yeah, because it was important. you know why? Because knee replacement operations, total knee replacement operations, is the number one operation for people over 50. Ah. Yeah, and in terms of Medicare, it's the number one surgical procedure for, for Medicare. So it's and it's getting more and more popular. I mean, we're getting older, our knees are getting worse, and uh, so I used, I did it, and and you know, I, I, I liked it because when I start composing a story, I, I, I listen to the audio very carefully, and, and one of the things I liked about the audio that I had to work with that compelled me to actually do the story was that during the operation, they're soaring my knee. You can hear the sound of the sore. And you can hear me snoring. <laughs> so I had soaring and, and snoring. snoring. Well, that, I mean, to me, that's a perfect right? title for right. an autobiography. <laughs> but I remember how. This is going to be my obituary, right? <laughs> soaring and snoring. Or both. <laughs> but I remember, because I listened to the piece, how out of it you sounded when you were coming out of the anesthesia. Right. So did you, was it your idea to do your own knee replacement story as opposed to doing it? For, on somebody else? It was. I thought that I'm, I've got this opportunity, let me bring, make it real. And so it was me being real. And it was real. I, when you heard me getting out of the anesthesia, I mean, that's, I, I condensed it a little bit. That's, that's, that was me, I was out of it. And you also had a goal because you're an avid bicyclist, right? Right, that's the, they always say when you get knee surgery, you'll know when you need it. And I was literally going in head first in my car because I couldn't, I couldn't bend my knees, and, but it was because I, it was really because I couldn't ride my bicycle that was compelled me to decide to get it done. Okay, so that's one of your few I stories. Um, when I met you, which was uh, while we were both doing a volunteer stint for uh, pledge drives, which won't happen here, no pledging today. Though I just signed up for another one, so I know they're coming up. That's happening soon. Yep. So you were talking about. Um, your, and you mentioned your accent. Now, you told me a story about Robert Siegel from All Things Considered and what he thinks about your accent. Yeah, so I, I was working at NPR. I was a reporter. And um, he called me into his office. He was the executive vice president for, for news at the time. He had just been the correspondent in London. So he had, this, he had an accent, an affectation. And he was also from Queens, New York. Now, I'm from Brooklyn. He's from Queens. There's that kind of libel. <laughs> and, and he called me into his office and he said, um, Bruce, it's not because, it's because. <laughs> and I said, because? He says, yes. And I, and, uh, I, think you should, I think you should take voice lessons. What do you think, Bruce? 
and I told him what I thought. <laughs> and you're not going to use no, those no, words no, here, right? No, no. So did you you knew he was from Queens then, and had he taken voice lessons as well? No, I don't think he took voice lessons, but I think he had this affectation, uh, and he kind of still does, from England. You know, he was there, he was living there, he was the correspondent, and then he came uh, back to D.C., and he has, he's very erudite, he's very smart, he's a very nice man. Um, but he didn't like my accent. And you know what's really interesting is that now you hear NPR, there's accents all over the place, right? I mean, that's part of the, the flavor right. and the depth and the difference and, the, and what distinguishes public radio, I think, from other mediums. And, um, and so I decided, and this was way back when, I decided, you know, this is me. I, I've never said because on the air since. <laughs> well, you just did it now. I did. I said because. <laughs> but, I say, but I don't say it on the air. It, but, you know, I have an accent. I have, it's me. And I decided I'm going to be me. I'm going to write like me. I'm going to think like me. And if people don't like it, well, that's okay. They I, I didn't know it would be as important for radio as it would be for TV to be accentless. Because I think people on TV are supposed to be basically mannequins, I think, you know, and could very easily be replaced by robots somewhere along the line, which I'm sure is going to happen. Even reality TV? Oh, no, but I don't <laughs> consider that real TV anyway. Um, so I guess uh, I have, I actually kept, read an article about uh, some, a woman who helps you lose your accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I have one. But I, you know, mine doesn't bother me because it's not as, I also was born in Brooklyn, grew uh -huh. up in New York. But um, I can hear. you can, but you can't hear any Massachusetts because mm -hmm. I never picked any mm -hmm. of that up. Yeah. So, but being in Massachusetts kind of tamped down the New York, mm -hmm. just because I don't hear other New Yorkers mm -hmm. speaking that much. So, of course, when I was sitting next to you at the pledge drive, I I heard mm -hmm. your accent. And I yeah. said, Ah, here's here's one of my homeboys. Right. But so, there are dead giveaways when you're you know you're from Brooklyn or from any place but Boston. You come and see Copley Square. Right? right, you do that. Those, I went through all those things. I made it. In fact, when I first got here, what did I say? Not Tewksbury. There was some town that I just totally missed. Peabody. No, it was worse than that. It was not Bill Ricca. Muffa. Not Muffa. <laughs> um, what was it? There's some. Oh, I know what it was. I said, and there was an accident in Leominster. <laughs> Okay, and they let you continue on, huh? Oh, what else are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you were in at uh, NPR's uh, station in Washington? No, I was at NPR, the, the mothership. Oh, the, the mothership, that's yeah. what it's called. So, and what happened there is soon after I got there, I, I was working, and they went bankrupt. They lost, like, all sorts of money. And so everybody got fired, and, and, and I, you know, I wasn't going to leave. Where was I going to go? I just got there. They just hired me, and now I'm out the door. So I figured, I'm going to stay there. All these people leaving, I, 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 uh, I'll make more money than ever freelancing. And I did. And I did that for a while. And then I got rehired when they got back on their feet. But we had so little money at NPR. I mean, it happened very quickly. It happened like February or the mid-'80s. And, um, and we had to borrow paper from across the street at CBS and had to use turned over garbage cans for seeds. Was it was it political when we uh, went bankrupt? No, it was just mismanagement. Really? Yeah. And it was all of NPR, not. I it mean, was, so it was it the was mothership, a, but the individual stations. No, the individual stations actually bailed NPR out. Really? Yeah. So, so that's how the funding works. So it's the individual stations that. So can the way the funding works is individual stations raise their own money, right? So WBUR raises its own money, 
and they buy the network products. So if we buy all morning edition or all things considered or you know whatever, we, we, we have to pay dues depending on the size of our audience, the scope and so on. But we also, WBUR is a huge station, right? So we produce On Point and Here and Now and you know, all the games. So other stations pay us for that. We're a big station, we're a big deal. So um, let me ask you quickly about WBUR versus WGBH. Now, WGBH, uh, other than their alignment with, uh, with Koch Brothers as far as some of their TV programming goes, um, is primarily classical music, but they also must run All Things Considered and stuff well, like they, that. Yeah, they call themselves, you know, the Boston uh, News, NPR News Station. Um, they're good. I know lots of my friends work there. They have lots of shows that, you know, I listen to. Uh, there's, a, there's a rivalry, but, you know, we don't really think of what they're doing, at least at least in the news. It's not our concern. We do our stories. We do them as well as we can. And we, we let them. We don't we, maybe maybe marketing deals with that kind of stuff. We're going after the same kind of money and funders, uh, but no. Not, in terms of news, no. You know, I show up at a news conference or a news event. They're all my buds. Okay. Now, but now let me move on to the real reason that we're here. Because normally, I don't go around to radio stations shoving microphones in reporters' faces. But um, as we we were sitting next to each other. I was scheming about how to get you on Book Stew because Book Stew is called Book Stew. It's not called Radio Stew. And so I turned to you and I said, <laughs> I said, have you written any books? And you said, yes, you had. And I'm like, oh, what a relief because now I can really legitimately ask him to come on the show. So I happened, just happened to have a copy here of New England Curiosities, the big book of. And I did find this on Amazon. So there are actually three books. There's a Boston one, a Massachusetts one, and a New England one. Mm -hmm. So off the top of your head, since you did co-write this, what's the oddest oddity that you put in the book? Whoa. That, well, there was a guy who caught a grape in his mouth thrown off the top of what was the Hancock Tower. So, and he caught it. So, and that was a world record. I mean, that was a Guinness Book of Records. Wait a I minute. Like I would think you would get killed no, or break so. your tongue. No, 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 no. He was, he was from Medford. And Figures. He, yeah, he was great. I I loved him, and uh, and I met him. We we had nice conversations, series of conversations. Um, and ha had he started small by like? No, no, no. This guy was just he was on um, Johnny Carson, and he was good. This he was, was a grape catcher, a professional grape catcher. He was a professional grape catcher. I didn't know any of those windows opened, so it was at the top. Ah, uh -huh. not only did the windows open. They didn't open, they fell out. Right. Everybody knows that. Yes. Right. What they don't, what most people don't know, and I wrote about it in the book, is that um, the, the building almost fell over. So if you, two of the floors in the middle of the Hancock Tower, which is now called like 200 Berkeley Street or something. 200 Wind Tunnel Avenue. Yeah, right. Wind Tunnel Avenue is right. But and it, that's exactly right. Well, but the building was built. And it, a Swiss architect looked at the design. They built the building, and he says this building's going to fall down. So the middle two uh, uh, floors have counterweights, and they actually swing in counter to the was, or the wind pushing the building around, keeping it stable. Yeah. You can go up there. So did he have to figure the grape thing against <laughs> the counterweights? I, I, I hadn't thought of that. I can't believe that about the grapes. Yeah. All right, I'll get past yeah, the grapes. Yeah, so you yeah. did write uh, three of these books, mm -hmm. and was uh, 
was had you learned a lot of this through your reporting here, or did you have to go out and do research? I did research, all original research. You know, one of the what I liked about they came to me to do the book, okay, and 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 uh, I love just looking at something and realizing it's got a story, right? You you could stand in front of the Hancock Tower all day and not know somebody breaks into somebody's mouth, right? You could stand there for an entire lifespan. Lifespan, you know, and then you know, then the, you could you go across the street to the New Old South Church. And that has um, a, 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 a rope that's in the water that measures the depth of the of the water there, which has to be above the pilings, which were what was used there to build up that area. And you could stand in front of there and not know that, or you can stand in front of the, the same church and, and and look at it, the facade, and you'll see if you look very carefully that there are the two architects, their faces are in the stone, or. You could look at the stones and realize that every animal mentioned in the Bible, the Old Testament, is mentioned in, in, in and the old, and the New Testament is is shown in the stone and in the interior of the church. And you found out this along asked, with the grape guy. Yeah, you know, I you know, I just you know, you scratch the surface, you peel an onion, you peel an onion, you peel, you peel an onion, a grape, peel a grape. And sometimes you cry, and sometimes you find some nuggets. And this, I mean, that's I love it. And actually, what I did later on, I had an idea, which since I do radio, I went and since I was doing recordings anyhow, I had all this recording of all these people. I turned them into little sound stories. So I've got pre-podcast, right? Yes, pre-pod, pre-GPS. And my idea was, well, I'll rent out these devices, and they'll have audio on it, and people stand in front of it, and they'll press the button, and. It never went anywhere, of course. But it's almost like uh, going to a museum and listening to the audio tour, but instead of listening, you're speaking. Right. It's right there. You get it, you know. And I thought of how to commercialize it. It's something I still want to do. You know, stories are fabulous. I mean, they're really interesting stories. So um, what are you working on this week here? Well, this week? <laughs> so I'm working. I just finished the story about the, the world's biggest battery, okay? So the world, and I, so I like this stuff, right? But it's but it's meaningful because I want I'm doing a series of batteries, and I'm calling the series the search for the holy renewable energy holy grail, okay. which is energy storage. So I did a story about um, uh, a, a mountain in central Massachusetts, which had the world's largest battery it's in the mountain on top. It's a five Why? Why? five billion gallons of water, which is brought down, pumped down to, uh, down to the middle of the mountain, which was hollowed out, and they had a, a hydro plant in the middle of this hollowed out mountain, and the water goes there, the energy stored in the, in the water, which is a form of water energy, and it turns the turbines, and they pump the water back up, and the price is cheaper for the electricity, and they keep on repeating that, and they produce electricity and profit. So that was, that was on today, and now I'm working on a rhubarb battery, which could change the world. A what? A rhubarb battery, a battery based on the chemistry of rhubarb, which Harvard professors think has promised to revolutionize the world in storage of energy. Rhubarb like the... Like the rhubarb. Like the red, red rhubarb. Red and green. Okay, so um, what, so let's take us from the very beginning of how the battery, big battery, mm -hmm. started. How did you get, did you get assigned that story? No, no. Most of my stories don't. Some, about a quarter of my stories are assigned. The breaking news stories are assigned. Features usually it come I have to generate so a lot of it's derived from just being curious I mean that's the one thing so when I failed journalism 
right? I didn't know how to write. I didn't know what a story was. And I didn't know what a lead was. And I didn't know. I didn't know how to do any of it. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. But I was curious. That's what they don't teach you. And you were always curious. I was always curious with an accent. <laughs> All right, now I'm going to ask you, since these books um, are available through Amazon, uh, when we spoke, you told me about your newest project. Ah, my newest project. Well, it's, it's, it's now a three-year-old project that I'm working on. It'll probably work on for the next six years. It'll probably take me six years, more years. So ten years. Let's call it ten years total. And that's about, uh, I'm investigating what happened in Watertown, the shootout with Sinai Brothers. That's my project. And you live in Watertown. I do. And you assigned this to yourself. I did. And you're going to tell us some very interesting things about it when the book is published. I'll tell you now. Here I am. It's Eileen McDougall back again with Bruce Gellerman, my guest. We had a slight interruption of a couple of weeks before we were able to uh, finish up our discussion, and this is going to be recorded on audio, though you'll still see some visuals of the two people who were made for uh, radio rather than TV, myself and Bruce Gellerman. So, Bruce, um, in addition to your book about oddities, we are now just passing the fourth anniversary of uh, the Boston Marathon tragedy, and your Next book, I understand, is going to focus around Watertown and the tragedy. Can you tell us a little bit about it, please? Sure. Well, the idea is that uh, it's, uh, that things happen in a context, right? So, as a reporter, you know that it, it didn't. The story doesn't happen when you start reporting the story. It's happened before. There were events before, and things happen afterwards. So, I'm trying to put the events of Watertown in context and also finding out lots of things that are not generally known about what happened in Watertown uh, during the uh, shootout. Okay, so, you know, we're, we're, all, we're all very <laughs> eager to hear. I, we all know there was a tremendous police presence and that uh, many of those police officers basically came on their own without any directions from their mm -hmm. Uh, chiefs or their their departments. Right. It was self-reporting, they call it. But my question that I started off with was, why did the Tsunayev brothers come to Watertown that night in the first place? But more importantly, why do they return to the same spot in Watertown three times that night? That's what I found curious, and that's what I've been researching ever since the tragedy four years ago. So one of the things that I was looking at was, again, the context of Watertown. What was going on in Watertown before the Tsunayevs? Were they known around town? And what I found out is, one, the Tamerlan was very familiar with Watertown. In fact, when he went back to Dagestan in 2012 and stayed there for six months, people thought he talked about Watertown so much that people thought he was actually from Watertown. And he had talked about corruption in Watertown. And, um, and so that kind of fortifies what I found out. And what happened in Watertown, what was going on, was just before this, there was an international drug ring uh, located, centered uh, in Watertown. It was doing marijuana and barbiturates and 
everything else coming in from Canada and places from the South Mexico. Um, and there was a, 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 a guy who's now serving time at federal prison named Seth Juan Moderati, who was a, a Watertown resident, and supposedly he was the ringleader. And if you find, if you follow the trail, you can follow it and you can see that Tamerlan was involved in that ring. And I believe that ring had much more uh, greater interest than just marijuana. And in fact, I, I doubt very much that this guy, Sefran Matarati, was the international drug ring leader. Uh, but it involved 20 people. Uh, seven, 20 people were indicted. Uh, 17 or 16 went, went to prison. Um, and what you, if you follow the money and you follow the drugs, and you follow the gold, the, the money was turned into gold. I believe the money was sent overseas and was used, and this is, this is now supposition, I must say, but I, I've got plenty to kind of bolster the circumstantial, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna nail it down. I believe the money really went to, to, to fund rebels overseas. So Tamerlan, but Tamerlan was just muscle. He was just involved in the, the money making of it, you know, delivery boy, basically. He, that's what he always was, a pizza delivery boy. He used to drive elderly people around. Um, and his brother, we know, was involved in uh, dealing drugs on the Dartmouth campus, UMass Dartmouth, because he, uh, you know, he was well known on campus. He may have been the biggest pusher. And in fact, we, he was clearing about $1,000 a week. You know, people should ask, well, how did he afford his tuition, right? That's about $20,000, even with a small uh, grant that he got. And so he was doing okay. So the drugs were coming out of Watertown. They, they actually, the drugs were coming from Canada, coming here, and then um, money being turned into to gold, basically, through a series of gold jewelers. But the other thing that I found that that was really interesting is related to the gold and related to the police department here. The, the, the gold, one of the guys involved in this ring who was not indicted, incidentally, but was stopped with three quarters of a million dollars worth of gold bars coming in from Canada to the United States. They were confiscated, um, was a gold jeweler, and I believe he plays a pivotal role in this whole thing. And the reason I do think that is because right across the street from the boat, he actually doesn't live in Watertown, this guy, but right across the street is, a, um, is where the boat was with Jahar was found that night. I don't believe Jahar and I have spent the 18 hours people looking for him in that boat. In fact, we, you know, you can ask, and I do, ask the question, why did they find him? Because he only parked a few hundred yards away from where he was found. And, um, and, and if you had, you had taken a golf ball and rolled it down the hill, it would, would have right, would have, you know, wound up right in front of that, of that, uh, uh, of that boat. And there were fingerprints and there was blood, but why did they start the, 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 the search for Jahart's and I, not from the car where he leaves, but from six-tenths of a mile where the, back where the shootout happened? That's just unbelievable. It's as if they didn't want to find him. And in fact, they called off the canines, which were tracking him at the time. So, you know, he had only gone, uh, what, 300 yards? <laughs> that's the distance between the car and the boat. But what's interesting is diagonally across from the boat is a house. And that house was, it is owned 
by this guy who was busted with the gold bars. Mm-hmm. So these are tangential links, but there's another, and I think this is the most interesting, and this is a fact, if you believe the former chief of police of Watertown, Ed DeVoe, because he writes this in an, uh, an, um, a nomination letter for an award, a state award for bravery. And I found this letter, and it was publicly available, and Chief Ed DeVoe writes that one of his officers heard the call he was home, jumped in his car, crossed the town, and just by pure, pure accident, stopped Tsunayev in the car. Now, you don't see that anywhere else, right? He stops Tsunayev, watches Tsunayev. The, the, the letter from Ed DeVoe says he, 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 he blocked the way. He watched uh, the, the guy jump out of the car, take off through backyards. And that's all we ever learn. Well, you mean to tell me a Watertown police officer saw this guy run through backyards, didn't tell anybody, didn't run after this guy, didn't send out a radio message, didn't, didn't fire a gun at him? I mean, this is incredible. Didn't tell anybody? How is that possible? Well, it turns out that police officer, I believe, was involved with the drug ring. Oh, Bruce, you're still living in Watertown. I'm a little bit uh, concerned about your safety now. Well, you know, one of the things I've tried to do to, to stay safe is tell everybody I know. And so this is not the first time I've said this out loud, you know. And have you, have you spoken to... That if anything happens to me, people will know. Well, I don't want you anything know. to happen to you, but have you spoken uh, on the record or off to anyone at the, at the Watertown Police about it? Uh, well, you know, the, this little episode about this officer actually is, is in a story that I did two years ago about on the anniversary. And people didn't pick up on it because it's, it's a small piece of a, of, of a larger story. But the chief of police heard it, and when I saw him at yet another award ceremony, he said, I went, you know, right off the cliff with this information. And I, I said to him, I said, well, it's not my information. You wrote it. And I verified that it, it was from the Watertown Police Department, and it was the official record. It's a public record. You can get it. So it's there. Now, somebody should ask questions about that. And, and I should say, you know, there's a new book out now, which is a very fine book, and it's written by a colleague, Michelle McPhee, and it's called um, Maximum Harm. And it just came out, and, 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 and she pursues a very interesting question, which I also had, which was, if you look at the official court record, you will see that the chief, the head prosecutor for the federal government, a guy named William Weinreb, says in a, in a statement in court that uh, that's uh, part of the record that the federal government does not believe that the Tsunayevs built the explosives because they lack the sophistication and they lack the materials. So the question, and this is right in the record, well, if they didn't, then who did? And McPhee, she pursues this question, and so did I, and we came to a similar conclusion. I, you can read the book. I'm not going to give out her whole book. But the real question is here is if, after you go over and over and over through this information, the conclusion that you reach is twofold. One, that the story makes no sense. It 
does not make any sense at all. And two, that the, there's a lack of curiosity, an incredible lack of curiosity, right? I mean, wouldn't you want to know who made the bombs? Well, I, mean, I think we we just really all important. we just all assumed that since it was in a pressure cooker and you know filled with nails and stuff like that that and you know that's an assumption that that's something that you know you go on the internet and you find you put in to in uh, into Google pressure cooker bomb and the instructions come up so um, you know These... I I never would have suspected anything beyond them doing it themselves. Well. <laughs> These were, in the government's words, very sophisticated devices. You know, this is not like cooking up a chicken cacciatore in a pressure <laughs> cooker. These were detonated remotely within 12 seconds of each other. The, the level of sophistication was, is beyond, according to the government, these guys' ability. But what's really interesting is that they didn't have any evidence of the residues of these explosives. Now this stuff is really fine powder. It gets all over everything. The government went into the apartment where they live at 410 uh, Norfolk Street in Cambridge, went to the third floor where they were living in the apartment, took out the pipes, took out, uh, did these specialized vacuum cleaners. They could find virtually no evidence of explosives. They found a little tiny bit, and that was from, from these fireworks that they had bought up in New Hampshire. But the American Pyrotechnic Association will tell you, and I have their letter, and it is available online, and you can see where they say it's physically impossible to make those types of explosives out of those types of chemicals. It just was not possible. They just would have had to have thousands of more times more the materials than they bought up in New Hampshire. And in fact, they did buy those things in New Hampshire. And we have pictures of Jaharts and I of setting them off with friends on the, on the, uh, on the Charles River. That's why there are certain little tiny residues. But in terms of those, those um, uh, pressure cookers, the pressure cooker was found the same make and model in someone's house in Topsfield, Massachusetts, with fuses and explosives and ball bearings and nails. And this is, you can see this, it's in the record. Whatever happened to that guy? I believe, and McPhee, I think, believes, uh, I know she does because it's in her book, that he was involved. So this thing is, is much wider. They have a story that makes no sense. And when you pull it apart, it, it, you come to certain conclusions. Now, I'm willing to be wrong in my conclusions, but my questions are unanswered, and I'm still looking for answers, and I, I'm, I'm going to do my darndest to get them. You know, there's some explaining to go around. Well, you've... I'll give you another, another go ahead. example. Go ahead. So there's, there's a guy, there's a Senator Grassley, right? And Senator Grassley asks a question of the FBI, the then head of the FBI. And he says, if, if, did you try to recruit Tamerlan Tsunayev as an informant? If not, why not? That's a brilliant question. Because Tamerlan Tsunayev was like, perfect to be an informant. That would be the obvious thing. Of course you'd want to recruit him. And I have an eyewitness who was there when a government agency, which I'm not sure of the exact name and nature, 
approached Tamerlan and his mother and tried to recruit them. And I am told that the mother was enthusiastic and Tamerlan reluctant, or less so. So, you know, we know that Tamerlan Tsunayev goes to Dagestan for six months. Six months on a green card. He didn't even have a passport. Allegedly, he was going to Dagestan to get his Russian passport renewed. But he never leaves with the new one. And he leaves in six months. When you come back to the United States in six months after being gone with a green card, right, as a permanent resident, you automatically go through secondary inspection. Automatically. Which is a rough inspection. They never did it with Tamerlan Tsunayev. So here you have... The, the Russian FSB, that's kind of their CIA, they had told the FBI that they thought this guy was getting radicalized. The FBI only later, after Tsunayev, after the shootout in Watertown, acknowledged, only then did they acknowledge that, the, that they, had, uh, they had spoken to Tamerlan and interviewed him at the request of the FSB, right? But, and we now know that, right? And they said, well, we found nothing. Well, that's all fine and good, except for one thing. How did Tamerlan get into Russia, which now was well aware, looking for this guy and investigating this guy? Why would the Russians let him into their country? And more importantly, why would the United States let him out and back in without a, without a passport, without proper documents? After being out for six months, he bought a ticket in, with cash, a one-way ticket with cash. That's like, there's so many red red flags going off, you, you, you know, you could fill a stadium. So these are the questions I'm going to be spending the next couple of years researching. I plan to start writing in four years. I'm not, I'm not going to write a word. I'm very disciplined. I'm looking for answers. I don't want to be premature. But these are the questions I'm raising. Well, you've given us a lot to think about, no doubt about that. And uh, uh, what I'm going to say at, uh, at, to conclude our interview is... Uh, First of all, be careful. Be very careful. Uh, second of all, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you, and um, I will look into your friend's book because that sounds interesting, and um, we'll check back with you. Uh, hopefully, Book Stew will still be on the air, and hopefully you'll be uh, wrapping up a first draft sometime in the next few years, and it sounds like there's really a lot to learn, and I kind of got a shiver down my spine, so... Uh, Keep uh, keep working and uh, keep reporting on it, and it's been wonderful speaking with you, Bruce. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it, Eileen. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, Bookstu viewers, listeners, uh, Bruce has really given us a lot to chew on here and in a very timely way since it's been four years since... Uh, the tragedy that changed our cities and our lives forever. So uh, we'll be keeping tabs on him to hear what else he's got to say. I never suspected that there was this much behind it, and I'm certainly intrigued. So thanks for watching and listening, and um, have a great uh, spring and summer, which we'll be heading into. This will be the May episode. Good night.